we find ourselves again in the middle of this uh, salvation assurance of salvation series, and there's a outline in your bulletin there if you want to follow along with that. But we've been looking at and asking different questions. And the first we started this uh, months ago, asking this question: you know, How does a person become a follower of Jesus? And then. We saw in the, the book of Acts that a person does that by re- repentance of their sin and being baptized. Again, baptism doesn't save them, but it's that public declaration that I want to follow Jesus. I'm no longer going to follow my sinful lifestyle. I'm going to follow Jesus now. And then we've been asking that question, you know, what happens? What happens when a person becomes a follower of Jesus? And we've seen different things, and you'll see kind of a list uh, here in a few moments of what happens, how a person's redeemed, how a person's a new creation in Christ, how a person is justified, and so forth. And then we started asking this question, what, what happens when a follower of Jesus sins? And how there's this transformation that takes place. And really, that's this reminder that a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ or life is changed from the inside out. So many times we think after a person comes to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior that it's like, okay, I now have to follow a list of rules of do's and don'ts. That's not what the Gospel of Jesus is all about. It changes a person's life God gives us a new heart, that new creation that changes that person's life from the inside and then it affects how we live. And that's where we, that's where we saw last week with these characteristics of a follower of Jesus. Of course, the famous song, you know, the whole love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness song that we all taught you everything. Uh, hopefully that's going through your head uh, maybe all week long. I know... Um, when we did the trunk retreat, the Margaret and I dressed up as some fruit of the Spirit, and the people next to us probably got sick and tired of hearing that song for the hour that we were out there. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are fruits, things that are produced naturally in our lives as we, as we follow Christ, as Christ works in our hearts and our lives. These are just things that naturally come about in our lives. We don't have to try to be more loving. We don't have to try to be more joyful. It is as we follow, and that's what Paul is saying in Galatians, as we follow, as we continue to become more like Christ, these things just naturally produce. It's like a fruit tree. An apple tree naturally produces an apple. An orange tree naturally produces an orange. We don't have to... Yeah, we do have to little, maybe a little fertilizer here. Maybe have to trim it here to make it better, but it naturally produces that. That's why Paul calls these the things the fruit of the Spirit. This change takes place. Today's passage that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is kind of a transitional time, if you want to say, that we kind of pick up where Paul left off in Galatians. But we also are going to kind of start looking at this, this role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as we look at the, this passage beginning in verse uh, 9 there, it says, No wrongdoers will not inherit the, the kingdom of God. And as Paul's writing this, I mean, he's writing to a, a group of believers in Jesus in Corinth that came from this, this pagan lifestyle, and we'll see that here in a few moments of just some of the crazy wickedness that they were involved in before they became a follower of Jesus. And he reminds them that sinful people, that sinners, will not live in the presence of God in heaven. If you're following along, there's your first point in your outline. Sinners will not live in the presence of God in heaven, nor in the 
heavens and a new earth. And that's what that phrase, the kingdom of God, is all about. And, and, and Luke, it talks about the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it talks about the kingdom of heaven because Matthew's writing to the Jewish people who didn't want to use the, the name of God. They, they were so, they valued, they, they thought God's name was so holy that they couldn't even say it. Or they were in, in fear of taking it, the Lord's name in vain. And so that's why Matthew says the kingdom of heaven. Luke says it's the kingdom of God. But this kingdom of God is as a person becomes a follower of Jesus and that God's rule and reign becomes into their hearts. God becomes king. They are now part of the kingdom of God. And Paul reminds them that sinners will not live in the presence of God either in heaven or in the new heavens and the new earth. Why is that? Well, it goes back to, again, this lifestyle, these, these fruits, and we saw that in Galatians, these, what, produce, what you produce in your life is, shows what your heart is like. So if you continue to live a lifestyle of sin, continue to live in such a way that God says, eh, that's, that's, that's not right, that shows that you really don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you, can, if you are growing in that fruit of the Spirit, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if you're growing in that, that proves that you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ. That fruit of your life is going to prove that. That's what the book of James is all about. Martin Luther, he wrestled with this. Because when you look at the book of James, when he came out of the Roman Catholic tradition that it was all about works, and he comes to the book of James, and James talks about, you know, let me, let me show you my faith by what I do, my actions. And he really wrestled with that. But then he realized, well, our actions, what we do is just an overflow of our heart. And that's what Paul is saying here. And the wrongdoers, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God because they're not, they don't have a right heart. There hasn't been this change that has taken place. In fact, he goes on in verse 11, and he says, No, and this is what some of you were. You came out of that lifestyle. But that's not who you are anymore. And then he adds these, these phrases that, that you were washed. Your sins have been washed away. That new creation in Christ. That when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, that they, their old sinful life is dead, is buried, is crucified, and the God raised them to new life. Their, old, their sins were washed away. They've been sanctified. That's just a big, big fancy word that says that you, you dedicate your life to God. You've been made holy. You've been set apart to serve and follow God with all your heart. It's one of the things in the Alliance, the, what we call the fourfold gospel. A.B. Simpson uh, started that, and it says Jesus is our, our Savior, but Jesus is also our sanctifier. That Jesus, as we walk with Christ, He begins to transform us, and we become this process where He becomes, He makes us and molds us to be more like Him in every single aspect of our life. He sanctifies us. We've been justified. That word is justified means that we've been set free. It's a legal term. That as we stand before a holy God, we no longer are condemned because of our sin. We've been set free from the, the, the penalty of our sin. <clears throat> and that's what we've been looking at all throughout this time. Who we are in Christ, that we're righteous. 
We have this right standing before God. We've been justified, set free, been reconciled. We are, we now have peace with God. We're not enemies of God. We are peace. We have, we are friends of God. We are new creations in Christ. We've been redeemed. We've been set free from the slavery of sin. The same terminology that God uses when He talks about the nation of Israel in Egypt. I'm going to come and I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to set you free from the slavery that you're encountering there in Egypt. That's what God does to us when we become followers of Jesus. And then Paul as one here, the sanctified. We're dedicated. We're set apart. We're become holy unto God. Paul says there's this change that takes place. You used to be that live in that wicked, sinful lifestyle, but that's not who you are anymore. Because of who you are in Christ. This change has taken place. In fact, we have to kind of remind ourselves what 1 Corinthians is all about. This is not actually the, the first letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It's actually his second letter. But we call it the 1 Corinthians because it's the first letter that we have in, in our New Testament. And, uh, and different times, the church in Corinth was probably Paul's number one problem church. Sometimes we always want to say, oh, we want to go back to um, follow what the, the New Testament church was like. I don't think anybody has in mind the church in Corinth when they say that. The church in Corinth was so dysfunctional. And part of it was because these pagan people came out of paganism, and now they're, they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in this pagan society? And so Paul writes uh, his first letter trying to help him. Then he writes this second letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, in response to all these questions that they have. How are we supposed to do, respond to this? How are we supposed to respond to this? What about this? Oh, oh, yeah, by the way, how, you know, what about this situation? How is a follower of Jesus supposed to do, live in that situation? And so as Paul explains and as Paul answers their question, he writes this letter of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that they deal with, you can read through the whole entire book of 1 Corinthians and you see this, is that the city of Corinth, there was so much sexual sin that went on in the city of Corinth. I mean, prostitution was ridiculous. There was... There was the, the, the understanding of being faithful to your spouse was not in their vocabulary in the city of Corinth. Very similar to, in a sense, of what our culture is becoming. And so, as Paul is writing, especially this chapter here in, in chapter 6, he's helping them realize this is when you look at how we are to use our bodies. You see, God cares about our bodies just as much as God cares about our souls. You know, sometimes even in, in the, our churches in, in America, well, we say, you know, all we got to do is, is share the gospel with them and, and that's it. You realize that's not the whole gospel of Jesus affects how a person lives. God cares about how we live and what we do with our bodies just as much as making sure our heart is right with Him. And so that's why Paul is explaining some of these things here. And the first thing he starts off is this understanding of that we have this freedom in Christ. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. 
I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now the NIV you see here is they take those first parts of verse 12 and you kind of see that in quotation marks. So that maybe was a saying that, that the church in Corinth said, like, it doesn't matter what I do, I can do whatever I want to do. And then I can whip out the get out of jail free card and go to God and be like, oh, forgive me. That is not exactly what is going on there. If I was on the Bible Translation Committee, this is how I would suggest. All things are possible to me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are possible to me, but I will not be mastered by anything. What Paul is saying here is this. We have freedom in Christ, yes. So we don't have to follow the Old Testament law anymore. We don't have to follow a list of rules of do's and don'ts anymore. We don't have to go on and say, hey, you know what? Uh, in order to be a real, true follower of Jesus, this is what it looks like. And, and again, we saw that the different cultures have to wrestle with this. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in America? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in China? It comes differently. It looks differently. That's our freedom in Christ. And so as we navigate our freedom in Christ, what Paul is saying here, he's really giving us you know, two ways to, to think through some things. So all things are possible for me, but number one, not everything is beneficial or useful to me. That's what that word beneficial means. Not everything is useful. I have the freedom in America to eat at McDonald's every single meal of my life. Have you ever seen the movie supersize me the guy did that that's not beneficial or useful to my body that movie supersize me if you have never seen that what happens is he he decides for the entire month one month he's going to eat at mcdonald's three times a day and if someone asked him would you like to supersize it he was he had to say yes so he did that halfway through and he did weekly doctor visits and and so forth halfway through that month his doctor and his fiance are pleading with him you gotta stop you're going to kill yourself you gotta stop and he's like well i i i made this commitment it's 30 days and he said you better like by day 21 if i remember right by day 21 day 22 almost to that goal it's it's not good Again, I can do everything is possible, but not everything is beneficial or useful to me. So when I have this freedom in Christ, I have to look at this and ask that question. Is this useful? Is this beneficial in my relationship with God? Is this thing beneficial to me as I follow Christ in my life? If it's not, then i got to cut it out. No matter how important I think it is, this is what Jesus says. If your right hand sins, what are you supposed to do with it? Cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, what, is, what are you supposed to do with it? Pluck it out. Now, is Jesus really talking about that we're supposed to pluck our eyeballs out and cut off our hands? No. It's that figurative that that's how serious we got to take sin in our lives. And the right hand in that society, that was the hand of importance. And so if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. Doesn't matter how important you think it is. If it causes you to sin and walk away from God, then get it out of your life. Stop it. All things are possible for me to do, yes. But not everything is useful or beneficial. The second test you want to say, all things are possible to me, 
that I will not be mastered by anything. You see, I do not want to be controlled by anything or anyone except for God. And it doesn't matter how small it is. There's a time when we were visiting Marguerite's family, and Marguerite's family, just because of the background of her uh, stepmom uh, growing up in a concentration camp, uh, the smell of coffee uh, is not a good thing for her. Well, I love my coffee. And we were there for a couple days. And all of a sudden, by that third day, if if you're addicted to coffee like I am, you start getting those migraines. And all of a sudden, Marguerite looked at me and was like, listen, go down to Wendy's, get yourself a coffee, everybody will be better for that. Uh, (laughs) But that control, that master, is God the only one in control of my life, the master of my life, or are there other things or other people doing that? I want to read for you, you'll see that passage if you're following along in your outline there, Ephesians 5. I want to read all those verses. It's It's a fairly lengthy passage. This is what Paul says. The same thing in Ephesians. Don't be controlled. Don't be mastered by anything. Only God should be your master. But among you there were, must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Again, how you live your life matters. Why? Because we are wholly dedicated unto God. Verse 4, nor should be obscene foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Paul continues, for, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. Why is a greedy person an idolater? Because they make God or possessions their, their idol. That's what they worship has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. Just what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light. Again, that's one of those images that God gives us as we Become followers of Jesus. There's a lot of others we could add to that list. We, I mean, we could do an entire, um, spend 52 weeks, an entire year on looking at all these images of what happens when a person becomes a follower of Jesus. They become, they were dead, now they're alive. They were in darkness, now they're in light. They were lost, now they were found. Live as children of light. In other words, live like Christ. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth find out what pleases the lord have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret but everything exposed by a light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light that is why it is said wake up sleeper rise from the dead and christ will shine on you be very careful then how you live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And again, Paul's writing this to the church there in Ephesus. If he can say that about his day, how much more can we say that the days we live in are evil? Verse 17, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And again, if I was to translate that verse, if I was on the translation committee, I would not translate it that way. Verse 18, this is how I would translate it. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be drunk. Same Greek word. I have no idea why they decided to translate it drunk in one place and fill it in another one. Same Greek word. And what Paul is saying there is this. Don't let alcohol control you, but let the Holy Spirit control you. Instead, be filled, be drunk, or be controlled by the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on and explains, well, this is how uh, in, in a marriage relationship, this is, how a, a, this is how a wife is supposed to submit to their husband. This is how a husband is supposed to submit and to love his and Paul says there's, listen, don't let anything control you. There's only one person that should control you, and that is God Himself. And so Paul continues back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 now. He continues after explaining all that and about how, you know, these two principles that we need to ask, the, is it beneficial, is it useful to us, is it controlling to us? If, if, those, if, if it's not beneficial, cut it out. If it controls us or masters our lives, then cut it out. And then Paul kind of goes into this whole sexual immorality discussion. And again, there's a couple words in the, in the Greek language that deals with the sexual immorality. Last week we saw sexual immorality, which is kind of the broad term that is any unlawful uh, thing according to God. And again, sex was only, was only supposed to be done in a husband and wife relationship, and that was it. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. Is it unlawful to God? This word sexual immorality that you see there in, in verse 13 is a different word. This is... Porne, where we get our word porn from, which means prostitution, type of sexual immorality. Sex that is paid for. I've always wondered, and I was thinking about this, um, this, you know, we, we get, again, we get that our term porn from, in a real sense, that word that is translated so many times, prostitution, Pornography is virtual prostitution, if you want to say. And so Paul goes on and says in this discussion, is listen, verse 15, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? And again, Paul, this argument of trying to help them understand that what they do with their bodies matter because, because they're members of Christ. And that understanding of member is this. Christ is the head. And we're parts of Christ's body. This is what he will get into in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14, isn't it? 
It's the same word he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talking about the body of Christ. That Christ is the head. We're all, we're all members or parts of Christ's body. Some of us are our eyes. Some of us are our hands. Some of us are feet. And, and, and it's okay. Every single part has a part because you can't tell, say to the hand, hey, you can't. We don't need you. That's because that's the right. Every single person has a part in this body of Christ. Some parts are more public, like pastors, song leaders. Some parts are behind the scenes that you'll never know until you get to heaven what they've done. And Paul says, listen, don't you realize when you become a follower of Jesus, you become actually part of Christ's body? You're members of it. So why in the world would you then go sleep around with whoever you can pay for? That's wrong. Because what we do with our bodies matters to God. And the reason why it matters is what Paul says towards the end there in, in verses, starting in verse 19. Don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? I mean, don't you know that when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, God comes and lives and dwells in you? And again, we, so many times when we think about this, this understanding of temple of the Holy Spirit, we have to ask ourselves and go back in, in the Old Testament and say, well, what was the temple all about? And here is uh, Solomon's temple, a picture of Solomon, what they think Solomon's temple looked like. They didn't have cameras back then when Solomon lived, but they think this is what it looked like from archaeologists. And in the Old Testament, you had this, even before the temple, you had what was called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, you had two parts. This tent had two parts. You had the holy place, and then you had the holy of holy places. And holy of holies. And in that holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. That, that physical representation that this is God's presence. Wherever the Ark was at, God was at. Which is why we have that scene when the Ark of the Covenant comes into to the nation of Israel's camp. They're shouting. They're, they're, they're getting ready for battle because God Himself has come into the camp because that was that symbolic understanding of the Ark of the Covenant. In the temple in Jerusalem, as King Solomon sets it up, when he puts the Ark of the Covenant there in the, the temple there in Jerusalem, that was the place if you wanted to worship God, you wanted to worship Yahweh, you had to go to Jerusalem. That was the only place you could do it at. That was that place where God's Spirit, where God dwelt. Well, of course, historically what happened, uh, the Babylonians come in and destroy uh, King Solomon's uh, temple, which was uh, huge again. When they got, the nation of Israel gets kicked off into exile, they think God's forsaken them. And God sends prophet out of the prophet and says, listen, I haven't forgotten you. I'm still with you. And so when the nation of Israel come back, that's when you get into Ezra and Nehemiah where they rebuild uh, the, the temple and when they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Again, they start rejoicing because, again, that, that symbol that God is there and dwelling among us. And this is what the first century King Herod's temple, again, looks like from archaeologists. Where the Ark of the Covenant 
Again, that box that represented God's presence dwelt. What Paul is saying here is, is this the image that we need to have? Don't you know that you're temples of the Holy Spirit? But so many times, this is what we think of nowadays. This building is not the temple of God. That's Old Testament theology applied to modern day that is totally wrong. And just to show you, there's an X. This past week, if you are interested in I did a, a blog post that asked that question, what does the word church mean? And you, I'm not going to go through all of it. Uh, we would be here for hours. And, um, but it is a good Bible study to look at the 117 times in the New Testament the Greek word ekklesia is used that is translated into English as church. And what does that mean? It has nothing to do with the building. This is not the temple of God. This is not God's house. This is a gathering place. That video we saw of Botswana, where was their gathering place? Under a tree, outside. They rolled out some turf so that they could sit on the ground and not get dirty. But New Testament time, where does God dwell? In people. God's temple is every single follower of Him. He dwells. He lives inside of us and we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead of what that what that means that i think as a pastor even within the alliance where we talk about the role of the holy spirit how jesus is our sanctifier and so forth we don't understand the gift that god has given to us in that his spirit lives inside of us and how the old testament people yearn for that and if they wanted to worship God, they had to go to Jerusalem to do it. This is why Psalm 42, exile, and the Psalm 42 is written in the same, as the deer pans for water, so my soul longs for you, O God, the living God. Because they wanted to go to that temple, and they wanted to worship God in Jerusalem. This is why Jesus says to the woman, uh, at the, the Samaritan woman, you know, the followers of mine are going to worship in spirit and truth. It doesn't matter where they are at. Because they, God's Spirit is with them and dwelling with them. Because they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says, that's why it matters what we do with our bodies. That's why it matters what we do with our lives. Because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul goes on and says, not only are we temples of God's Spirit, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And then that last phrase, it actually is a, that, that, that question is, ends there. And then he goes on and says, you are not your own. Do you realize that when we become followers of Jesus, we actually become God's slaves? When we become followers of Jesus, we give up our rights and we become God's slaves. I know that sounds weird, especially in America. We don't like that word slavery. But every time Paul introduces himself, he says, I am, and again our English translations will say, I am a servant of God. Literally, he says, I am a slave of God. Because as a slave, you have no choice. 
You do what your master says. Do you realize that's the mentality we need to have as followers of Jesus Christ? I am here on this world serving my master who is God. I am to live in such a way that I, he goes on and says that, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God with our bodies. That word glorify means this, that we are to live in such a way that people's opinions about God are improved. That we are to live in such a way that when people see us, they see us as followers of God and they see, whoa, that's what it looks like to be a follower of God. I want to follow God too. It's like the bug attracted to light. If you have a light bulb outside at the middle of the night, and good luck keeping the bugs away on that one. When we go camping, uh, is you can use different color lights so that are not attracted, though the bugs aren't attracted to, uh, to those, that light. But if you use this, the normal light bulb, there are so many bugs, which is why they put the bulbs in these uh, electric zappers now, so that when the bugs are attracted to that light, they can be no more. Um, but they have, bugs are just instinctively attracted to that light. That's how we as followers of Jesus Christ are to live in such a way that people are attracted to Jesus Christ. Every day. And do you realize that was part of what was supposed to happen in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel? That the nation of Israel kind of, I mean, they didn't, they didn't do it very well. But the nation of Israel was, God was going to send them into the promised land. God was going, told them that if you follow me, I am going to bless you like crazy. If you do not follow me, then you're going to be cursed. These blessings and curses. They were supposed to live in such a way that they were to live differently. That when the other nations saw them, they were like, oh, I want to become a follower of Yahweh as well. I want to go and I want to worship God there at the temple as well. I want to come and I want to become part of the nation of Israel as well. But because of their sin and their disobedience, the exact opposite happened. And they became a curse. When you talk to any waiter or waitress, when is the worst time to be a waiter or waitress? Sunday afternoons. Why is that? Everybody leaves church. They go out to the restaurants. They're rude. They leave horrible tips. They may leave a track with no tip. That's the hardest shift for any restaurant to fulfill. Shouldn't it be the exact opposite? When we're living in a community with our neighbors, shouldn't our non-believing neighbors look at the way we live our lives and say, that's what I want. That's what I want for my kids. The relationship between the, the husband and wife, that's, that's what I want. We are to live in such a way and understand that we do not belong to ourselves when we, sign, when we come to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's just not to have our fire insurance so we don't have to spend eternity in hell. It is totally so that we are to live in such a way that people are attracted to Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. 
God's Spirit dwells in us. We are the temple of God's Spirit. And if people want, aren't, if the unbelievers around us, they're never going to understand who God is unless we show them and we tell them this is who the Lord God Almighty is. This is what He's done for you. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. And He will give you a new life because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's how Paul says, we are to glorify. We are to live in such a way that people's opinions about who God is are improved so that one day they will say, I want to become a follower of Jesus as well. As Paul writes this letter to the believers there in Corinth, and they're wrestling with these questions of, you know, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in this wicked pagan society? What does it look like in this situation, that situation? And Paul says, you have to understand, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, this is who you are in Christ. Your old sinful life is gone. This, you are that new creation in Christ. You become a member of, of Christ's body to this world. God's Spirit dwells in you. You are not your own anymore. Every single day, and when you have breath in your lungs, every single day should be, okay, Lord, what, what do you have for me today? At my job, how am I supposed to serve you? And that's why Paul goes on and says, no, no matter what you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, because it matters. How we live, what we do, matters because of who we are in Christ.